Hey, Dental Associates and new practice owners, welcome to the Associates on Fire podcast powered by Practice CFO. This is the podcast that teaches you what you never learned in dental school, the financial side of dentistry. We cover topics from planning for ownership, buying a practice to student loans, taxes, and all things financial for the hungry to learn dental associate. So let's light it up. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Associates on Fire podcast. My name is Drew Phillips, and I'll be the host of today's episode. For those who haven't had a chance to check out our Associates on Fire program yet, I'm a CPA and CFO advisor at Practice CFO and one of the instructors in our Associates on Fire program. Be sure to check us out at www.associatesonfire.com. Today's show will highlight the experiences Dr. Matthew Delgadillo and his partner, Dr. Alice Chun, had during their search to find the right first practice to purchase. We'll cover the key points that they focused on during their first year of ownership and a number of other helpful notes that should help aspiring practice owners on their journey. I've been fortunate enough to work directly with Matt and Alice from the beginning of their practice search through today and hopefully for many more years to come. During our time together, we've learned a lot from one another, and our goal is to share a number of those lessons with you all today. Unfortunately, we don't have his partner, Alice, on the show today, but she's here in spirit and has been a big contributor to the overall progress of their practice. So without any further ado, I want to introduce you all to Dr. Matthew Delgadillo. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Drew. Yeah, happy to be here. Looking forward to this conversation. Getting started... I'd love to chat about where you began in your journey, which is where everyone starts, which is the educational experience. What did you find important or unique about your educational experience, and how does that relate to your practice ownership journey thus far? Yeah, I mean, we can go all the way far as far back to like undergrad, right? So, like people listening, you know, I was a science major, biology, um, and it wasn't until my junior year that I started realizing, okay, you know, I've actually got to figure out what's, what's my next step. Um, so I started looking to, okay, I could be a, a you know, a teacher, uh, I could do research, um, I could be a MD dentist, something along those lines. And to be honest, I, I you know, I saw the, the income that, that a researcher, a teacher made. And, you know, I realized that that really wasn't going to afford me the, the lifestyle that I wanted. Um, so I, I dove a little deeper into, you know, being a medical doctor or a dentist and I, I shadowed my, my dentist at home and I volunteered quite a bit at the hospital. And for me, the hospital just seemed so boring. Um, nobody really knew the patients that well. I mean, it was like in and out. Um, I really didn't get a lot of time with the doctors. They always just seemed really busy. Um, but then my dentist, I mean, all of his patients were his friends. Um, I got to do lab work with him. The staff, you know, was all pretty friendly and it just seemed like a much um, happier environment. Um, so, and, you know, lucky enough, I chose that path and I'm really happy about choosing that path. Um, and so it worked out really well for me. Um, but anyways, yeah, so I, I decided I wanted to go into dentistry. Uh, so that led me to being, a, a student at Loma Linda school of dentistry. Um, and I was really happy with that education. They gave a really strong, um, clinical background, um, taught you how to, how to think on your feet. Um, and so, so that worked out really well to set me up to have a good um, footing or, or basis to to take on um, being a new dentist. I guess I should say. Where, where in uh, your maybe was it your undergrad? Why when you met that we were shadowing the dentist, or maybe it was at Loma Linda? But at what point in, the, in your sort of educational experience did you just decide that I want to be not only a, a dentist, but I want to be a practice owning dentist? 
Yeah, you know, I can't really pinpoint um, where I heard this, um, but I know sometime in dental school, um, I, I felt like I heard it over and over again, but they said that, you know, the number one mistake that the dentists make or new dentists make is waiting too long to buy a practice. Um, and so you kind of dig deeper into that question, like, okay, well, why is that a mistake, right? And if you if you dig deeper, you talk to other practice owners, you realize that, you know, as an owner, I mean, yeah, maybe you have a little bit more stress, but you have a lot more freedom over your schedule. You can you can be as busy or, or as not busy as you want to be. Um, and then you have a better lifestyle because of that. And obviously your income, um, you have more control over that. And so coming out of school, you know, my, my goal was to always to have a practice or be an owner within two years. Um, I don't know why two years was the magic number, but I just thought, you know, within two years, I was going to be ready enough to, to take that step. And I almost kind of saw it as like, for those of you who have, you know, are, who are into investing, you know, they always give you the example of the two brothers and one starts saving early and one, one starts saving later. I always thought that, you know, once you become a, a practice owner, all those benefits start compounding. And so the sooner you can start that compounding effect, um, the better off you are. Uh, so that, that's just kind of how I, how I approach that. Well, I love that you related that to, into investing. That's, it's a special place for me. Um, so it's, I think that in just in that short little blurb there, I think I personally, what I already knew about you, but what our listeners probably just learned about you is that you were pretty methodical in terms of defining what you wanted from a pretty early stage. You know, you knew that you wanted to make money that supported the lifestyle that you wanted to live. You knew that you wanted to be a practice owning dentist within two years of graduation or finishing residency. Um, and maybe it's a more related to who you are as a person, but I think if I ha- if we have listeners here that are that are still in their educational process or even in residency, stressing the importance of trying to think introspectively and define what those goals are for yourself, and I think that and the reason why I stress that is it it really does lend um, to a uh, to a situation where you're you're able to not only define what you want, but then go after and, and find exactly the areas and, and the practices or the private practices that you want to work in that are going to foster exactly what you're what you're looking for. And if you don't define that, then you know you're sort of just uh, going through the motions, which I, I think is is really cool that that you did that. Um, so so moving on, so you, you, at residency or you want Loma Linda, the residency, and then when you were knowing that what from what you just said that. Um, that uh, you wanted to be an owner and you wanted to, you know, have the, the lifestyle that you wanted to live. What, did that influence where you were going to spend your two years as an associate? And and if so, you know, in what ways? Um, somewhat, you know. So, you know, I, I met my wife in dental school, and you know, she we're both from California. Um, we kind of tossed around the idea of leaving leaving California, right? Because everyone says that, like, you know, California is saturated and whatnot. Um, we decided to we both um, found jobs kind of in the more Sacramento area where, where she's from um, and, and pursued that route. Um, so location wise, you kind of chose just based on, you know, ease of access. Yeah. Where we wanted to be, what, what felt familiar, um, you know, kind of to, to bring it back to what you said about like defining your goals. Um, I feel like that's one thing that I could have been better about in the beginning that, that I would, you know, recommend to everyone who, whether it be buying a practice or any, any of your goals is really like narrowing down what you want. Um, because if otherwise you're kind of just meandering and, and you can't, 
you can't be decisive and you can't take action, right? Because you don't know what to, to say yes to if you don't know what you want. Um, and I think in the beginning, you know, I had a little bit of that as a problem as far as what kind of practice I wanted to buy and, and where I wanted to buy. You know, as an associate first year out, I didn't think too much of it. I just wanted to get some experience, um, you know, save up some some personal working capital and whatnot. And, and you were fortunate, you know, to, in, in, and I know this just because, you know, you and I know each other, but uh, you were fortunate to find a really great private practice to work in as an associate. And just curious, you know, how you found that and how that opportunity presented itself and, and how maybe someone else listening could search and find an opportunity like that and in, in that fosters sort of that next level of growth that, that you experienced there. Yeah. You know what? I actually, um, you know, I just, I found the job, um, online. It was just through, I think like glass door indeed. Um, but you know, I know other doctors had, had applied for that job, but I happened to be in the area, um, visiting, uh, my wife's family and I knew I was going to be there. So I decided to bring like a suit and, and it wasn't, I didn't have an interview yet, but I just went into the practice and, and, uh, said hi and just gave him like a face, um, to the name and introduce myself. And, um, I guess that, you know, the, the owner docs, he, he liked that being able to meet me and, um, you know, just taking that initiative, I guess. And so I was actually still in school. I remember because I, I had to do the interview um, oh, that was cool. after class. Um, and so we called and we had a really long interview and that's how I got the job. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a great associateship. Um, he's a really successful dentist, really, really nice, like high end private practice, um, fairly high patient flow great team. So, you know, you learn a lot about how to run an office, um, how to, how to talk to patients, um, how to provide quality care, you know, just, just a lot of different nuances that, that you wouldn't get maybe in another type of office. And, 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 you know, those experiences even more important for those that have the desire to, to be a practice owner, because ultimately if you're like Matt or if you're like a lot of the associates that I talk to that, that, that are on that ownership path, um, you not only want to be an owner, but you want to be the best owner that, that you can be and have the, a thriving practice. And, and it's what better way to, to, to do that than to experience that firsthand and, and one that's already been established. Yeah. And you know, it's good to, to make relationships with people wherever you go. So, I mean, I still, I mean, to this day, I still text the office manager, um, and ask her questions about staffing or how do they do certain things? Um, because you know, they've been doing it longer than I have. And so, you know, it's nice to be able to, to still benefit from that first job, even though I don't actually work there anymore. As it relates to being an an owner, which, which you are now, um, what were things in that particular practice that you found that gave you the, the level of confidence that you needed to go and find up highly productive practice from from the start that maybe you would not have uh, had uh, otherwise you know in dental school you know you see like uh, one patient for four hours right um and you, you don't you don't get exposed to how many you know in that in a busy practice you really see how much work there is to do um there's no shortage of work and you know when you have a, a well-run team um, it's almost like you're, you're on this like train that has this momentum. And as long as everybody's kind of pointing their momentum in the same direction, you just kind of, you just kind of ride that train and, and give a little bit of direction. Um, and it, it, it just seems to, to work out pretty well. Did the owner that you worked for in that associateship, did, um, did he spend 
some quality time with like treatment on the treatment planning side and, and sort of the soft, soft like chair side skills when you're talking to patients? Uh, yeah. So, you know, I, I, before I, um, before I actually started, cause I was waiting for my license um, to kick in, I think for a couple of weeks, actually, I was just shadowing him and just basically following him from, from room to room, um, watching him do exams, getting introduced to the patients, um, watching him treatment plan, um, getting to know the staff. And so that, that was kind of my first introduction into seeing how he talks to patients, um, and how to treatment plan. And, you know, the staff actually, you know, they've, you know, you're a dentist, but they've, they've been in dentistry longer than you have. And so a lot of them will, will give you advice too, um, because they want to see you succeed. Um, so you can learn, you know, not only from the owner, um, but also from the hygienists and, you know, assistants and whatnot. Yeah. It's surprising, right? That, you know, you have this credential as this, as the doctor, and then that would on the surface sound like you've got it all figured out, but the, you know, you can learn a whole lot from, from tenured staff that have been in a, in a well-run practice for a long time. It's very true. Um, well, subsequent to your associateship, you know, what, when you were trying to identify, you know, probably in the, you know, at the year mark, right. You're probably starting to get the feel that, you know, I was coming up on my two year note that I wanted to be an owner. Did, were there areas, did the, did the same, um, uh, forces that that drove you back to Sacramento for your associateship. Did they? Did that have a lot of underlying uh, drive to where you actually wanted to buy a practice? And, and and in addition to that, you know, picking the location. What were some things that you were looking for, intangibles or or non intangibles, in the practice that you actually wanted to buy? So, from a not, maybe an operational perspective. So you know, I for a while there, I had um, you know, you hear a lot in dental school and, and outside of dental school that that rural uh, areas are, are like the last place to, to make money. And, and because all the cities are saturated and whatnot. Um, and then myself being from the central Valley, I thought, well, let's, <laughs> let's go rural. Um, so we, we moved back to Fresno um, for, for another job um, with the hopes of, of finding a practice in that area. And not only to, to take advantage of a better like practice opportunity, but also like a lower cost of living um, and so that, that was one of the, the steps that we took towards finding a practice. Uh, we wound up not actually, uh, buying a practice in Fresno. Uh, we did buy a practice in a, in a more rural area. Um, but I would say to, to the listeners who, who hear that a lot about being rural. So, so yes, being rural is probably a little bit easier if you find something on the outskirts of like a big city. Um, but I know plenty of people in cities um, that have great systems and great practices. Um, they can also do really well and, and they live where they want to live um, because it's important, right? I mean, most people have a spouse and both, both parts of that team have to be okay with living, you know, wherever it is they live. Um, so just keep that in mind. Yeah, no, I think that that's an interesting segue there. Uh, for you know, Matt's uh, spouse is is also a dentist. Uh, her name is Alice, and she's 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 wonderful. She's awesome. Uh, and you know, having a, a dual doctor family definitely has its own set of dynamics and um and, and situations that, that that come up. What what were things that and how did you guys collaborate and, and approach you know the the purchasing process? Um. So, you know, I was, I, I had in my mind, like this gung ho, like I'm going to buy a practice right away. Right. So, um, I was probably too, I guess like, or less, less discerning 
because I had this like angst, like I need to get a practice right away. Um, and she was a little bit more picky um, about that. And so it worked out pretty well because, you know, I, I might've been more open to buying a practice that didn't have the the proper cash flow or, or thinking that we can bootstrap something where she was like, no, like the right practice, that's not it. Like we need to keep looking. Um, and so that worked out really well. And then, you know, having, if you're a two doctor, um, you know, family or couple, you have the opportunity if you're willing to work together to, to buy a much bigger practice. Um, and we all know that like the dentistry, or is undergoing like consolidation. And why is that right? It's because economies of scale. So if you can, if two doctors can practice out of one building with the same staff, um, you're going to have better, better margins. Right. And so you can use that to your advantage if you're a couple. Uh, And I think a lot of people maybe don't realize that. And there, I mean, taking it one step further, as, as a couple, you know, you could probably uh, relate that to okay, well, I could just find a partner and, and you know accomplish the same things. And 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 that in a lot of ways it, it is true, but there are some inherent um, uh, added cash flow benefits to being married and and yeah. two practicing dentists. There, there just is. Not that everyone needs to do that route. Obviously, it's probably nearly impossible to do that. But I, I do find that um, you know that that that's that is the dynamics that that happen ultimately. Yeah. I mean, too, also, I mean, cause you know, we kick around the idea of like in the future, I mean, nowhere, nowhere now, but maybe in the future, like, okay, let's have an associate, but you know, or associate or, or a partner, but like, let's say my schedule is, is slow or I don't have a lot of production. Um, you know, we're a couple and, and we're the same household. So, you know, no big deal if, if my production isn't high for the day versus you have a partner and your, your partner's slow, you know, your partner's not going to be very happy because your partner doesn't get to see the money that <laughs> that you produce. Right. So it, it adds a little bit of a complexity because you always have to make sure both doctors schedules are, are I guess, equally full or, or whatnot. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, a great expansion on that point. Absolutely. All right. So you, and, um, you know, you guys found a practice and really, you know, I think to highlight a super unique opportunity where they had that they, you guys found, um, uh, a location that housed two separate practicing practices. Right. Mm-hmm. And you guys had the brilliant idea of, okay, they're already in the same building. Let's just buy both and combine them. And it just so happened that they were both ready to sell at the same time. So kind of like this, uh, almost kismet type, um, situation where it was, it was just sort of a perfect storm. Uh, but kind of walk us through like, you know, cause evaluating that deal with you on the, in the, on the front, it was very interesting, right? Consolidating P and L's trying to identify like insurance differences, right? Cause we had one that was Delta premier only one that was Delta PPO plus premier. So, you know, a lot of things at, at play there. So just kind of walk them through, uh, your experience. Yeah. You know, it was, it was an interesting situation. It was, it was like Drew said, it was two separate, um, practices in one building. So if if you walked into the practice as a patient, you wouldn't think it was two practices unless unless you started talking to somebody. Um, but yeah, what was interesting is you know the it was a female doctor and a male doctor. The male doctor was, had been there for a long time, and the female doctor had had purchased the practice. I don't know within the last five years. Um, but yeah, so she was PPO. He he was Premier. Um, you know, he had the larger patient base, the, the healthier practice, um, her, her practice was a little smaller. Um, but you know, the, the biggest differences or changes in the practice were changes that we wouldn't really find out until we actually bought the practice. 
And so <laughs> you can, I guess, use our story as the, um, like an example of like, even if there are inner turmoils in, in an office, it's probably still going to work out. Um, but essentially these, these doctors really didn't get along very well. Um, and you know, the, the, so they had, there's a lot of conflict. And so we had to come into a practice and not only try and, uh, you know, keep up the production and stabilize, but also, um, transition the team to, to not want to be like side A and side B, you know, but now everybody's on side C. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, so that was unification kind of, of staff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it was, it, yeah. I, mean, that, that, I don't know if you want me to talk about anything else regarding the practice as far as, I mean, it was like, but, um, you know, bread and butter, not really any specialty. Yeah, no, I think that's no, perfect, right? So, when, you know, when you're evaluating as with your two years of associate experience, right, you you don't want to pick on something that's from like when you look at a production report, like, oh, this is this is 10 years worth of CE that I've got to do, right? Mm-hmm, right. So, you know, as you were doing your own due diligence, I, I think the listeners would love to know things that you were highlighting that were giving you the checks that you needed. Yeah. I mean, the, the big thing is like, so I would go through and, and look and see, okay, like, well, how many profies did they do in a year? How many periodic exams? And then from that, you know, they, you can, you can break down and figure out how many active patients they have or how many patients are actually seeing a year. Um, it's kind of hard to tell if somebody's like over or under diagnosing, um, until you really get in the practice. Um, you can look at percentages and things like that. Um, but I mean, that honestly, that's like the biggest thing is to look and see how many, how many patients are there. Right. Cause you know, dentistry is pretty forgiving and pretty nice because you know, every, every six months or every month, really you're, you get a whole new fresh start, right. You get a bunch of new faces. Um, and if your office, let's say your office is maybe not optimal at one point, you know, maybe you have a bad day or a bad week. Um, that's only one week out of your whole entire patient base that, that had that. And so you get to start over again, you know, the next week. Um, you know, one thing that I find interesting when I'm, I, now that I've been in the industry for, for some time now, and, and, you know, I feel like I'm definitely not as clinically knowledgeable as, as matter or any other dentist, but, but I, I've studied so many production reports and, and, and then translated that to, you know, cash flow differences, margin differences from an op- operating perspective, because, you know, I'm the math and finance guy, right? And so I think of almost everything in the terms of numbers. And you guys helped keep me healthily, healthily balanced by keeping the clinical aspects uh, in focus, which is, you know, obviously something that I don't have on my, on my, my side. But um, one thing that I found that I find interesting is, you know, you have a, let's say an example practice that someone, an associate is exploring to buy is doing, let's say one, one and a half million, 1.7 million. And then we get in the production reports and they've got 3000 active patients. They're doing, you know, 6,000 three surface composites. And you're like, well, can I run this practice by myself? And I'm in, in my, you know, without knowing the differences in production reports, you know, I would say, well, not practicing dentistry the, the way that they're doing, but with some treatment planning changes, I think for sure that we could maintain the same collection level and potentially enhance the margins. And so, and, and the reason why I'm saying that is because there's so many like small nuances when it comes to 
understanding whether a particular location or particular practice is, is, is suitable for a young and a new dentist. And I encourage everyone, right, to, to pick people on your team that have studied the, the, the inner workings um, uh, from, from multiple practices, from many practices so that you can sort of, uh, you know, just dissect it in a, in a way that, that sheds light and gives you confidence. Because ultimately, I, I think something that I really love about Matt and, and Alice specifically is they were um, confident, you know, going into it. They, they knew that as long as they surrounded themselves with the right team, that they were and had the right motivation and showed up every day. That they were going to succeed, and I think that that is um, words that I, everyone can can use as as they're starting in this process themselves. Yeah, I I would say to kind of to continue or, or touch on that would be you know you were talking about like one point two one point seven million. So like you know you said three thousand active patients and, and all these feelings. So that that's that's a bit much for one doctor, right? Um, but you know the way practices are valued. Um, I think, let's say you buy a practice that that seems a bit like audacious. You you can afford to lose patients, and you'll probably still be okay, and you'll 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 make plenty of money, and you can probably still pay pay your note um, if you had an already highly productive practice with a lot of patients, right? Um, flip side, you, let's say you're fearful. It's a lot harder to buy a practice that is smaller and then grow it to that big high level. Um, yeah. And, and like one, and even one piece further, right? Like sort of where we meet in the middle of the first example that I gave and the example that you just gave where you're, you may be a 700,000 collection practice. It's, you know, relatively s- slow moving. And then in the middle, right, you've got the doctor who's been, ex- who's got 15, 20 years of experience, his revenue per patient's like $1,500 a year. Uh, per patient and he's doing 1.5 but with like 600 active patients that to me right you look at the production reports probably some some heavy specialty work going on that to me was probably more risky than taking on the the, the practice where 3,000 patients a whole lot more than one doctor could handle but you could sacrifice a lot more there as you learn and, and, and cut your teeth as an owner yeah definitely um yeah i mean you can if you just have you know, a ton of patients and you just fine tune things. It's much better. Um, the other, you know, the other way being a, being a super GP is, is, uh, I think a lot more stressful. So what, what were some things that you changed? Actually, before we, before we, before we get to the change aspect, what are the things that, um, in those first 90 days, which are such critical, such a critical period for a new owner, right? There's so many moving parts. You're basically not getting any sleep and added that you had a kid that was really young going at the same time. What were some of the, what was life like? And, and what were some of the things that you'd want to highlight for the listeners that you had, a, that you had to overcome? Um, first word that comes to mind is stressful. Um, but you know, you get past it. Um, so what, I mean, for the first 90 days, you know, the big, the big thing is going to be, you know, if you have a practice that, that has any, any significant amount of insurance um, as part of collections, you know, there's going to be a lag there. So you're going to be relying on your working capital. Um, you're going to be relying on your CPA, like Drew, to tell you that everything's going to be okay and the collections are going to catch up <laughs> once once the insurance um, uh, and network verification is done. Um, but, you know, the biggest thing is really going to be, I mean, maybe this is just us, but just managing, you know, personalities. At the end of the day, you know, dentistry is dentistry. You know, we all know how to do a crown prep or, you know, do a filling. You all can somewhat talk to patients and, and tell them what they need. 
Um, but it's just going to be managing that team because you're new to them and, and they're new to you. And so, you know, learning how to do that proficiently in a way that, that everyone feels like they're being led in the, in the right direction is, is going to be challenging um, because you may be coming into a practice that, that, um, you know, didn't have that, like, like our practice. So I would say the people aspect of, is going to be, you know, one of the more challenging parts in the, in the first 90 days, but also um, clearly defining your vision to the team so that it's really clear moving forward. Um, because I think that's really critical that they see what you want in the first 90 days. And, and, you know, people will say that uh, there are natural born leaders and, and that is true, but leadership is, is a learned skill. No one I is 100% agree with that. I you know what I mean? In a book. So, so who did you lean on? Cause I, it wasn't me, uh, you know, <laughs> who did you lean on for the leadership side of the equation to get, to get your team united? And you had that unique you know, obstacle just in itself, but ha- who did you lean on in that, from that aspect? Yeah. So Alice um, actually is, is a lot better at that than I am. You know, I'm, I'm a lot more non-confrontational. Um, so I, I had a lot more trouble feeling comfortable you know, telling somebody when they, that they were doing something wrong or, or telling somebody, you know, this is the direction I want to go, not, not that direction. Um, she was, she was better at keeping an eye on that thing and, and being able to, to translate that to the employees um, so that we could um, be clear as far as what we want. Um, cause we, you know, you, you're, whether you think or not your, your team, they want clear expectations. Um, they don't want to just assume, you know, they, they want to know what's, what's going on. Matt has the, uh, Matt has the, uh, the nice ability to make complicated things seem very easy. But one thing that I always find is challenging, you know, you're, you're either going to have a situation where the, the staff really loved the selling doctor right? It was an amazing, happy situation. And it's a spectrum and you're going to have it all the way down to where they can't wait for someone to buy them and and take over the ownership piece. Um, But regardless of where you fall on that spectrum, you know, getting them used to your personality and getting them aligned with the vision that Matt was describing, you know, which is so important to to define, it it still has its challenges, right? And and your vision is going to change over time, of course. But what, what were things that you did with your staff specifically to help bring them on page and, 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 and help them to be supportive of your vision? You know, I think one of the biggest things is just having really open communication. So like the staff, you know, will often say that they're, they're really happy with the way that we communicate because whenever, you know, not only are, I think it goes both ways, right? Like we expect them to be open to what we're saying, but when they come to us and tell us something, like we're going to listen and and we're going to take that input and do something with it. Um, so by by them knowing that we respect their opinions and how they feel about this office, because obviously they've been here longer, I think they're going to be better at being receptive to what we have to say. Um, I think, you know, sometimes as an owner, like a dentist, doctor, whatever, you know, we get like, oh, you know, we, we know everything. So don't say anything, just do what I say. Um, but I think if you just listen, I think your employees have a lot, a lot to offer. So by reciprocating that, it just makes your job easier to, to bring the whole team together. That was really well said. You know, there's a fine line, I think, right, where listening and, and being receptive to pe- patient, to, to uh, staff members that have tenure and have experience in the industry and 
getting them on board with maybe changes that they may not be comfortable with and, and, and drawing that line where you still have sort of the leadership control. And, and where do you, where do you think that you found, like, at what juncture do you think you found that voice? Um, well, you know, in the beginning, I think we were just riding on the goodwill of the, the owner doctor. So, you know, he was really like, you he was one of those doctors that was really well-respected and the staff knew that he wanted us to succeed. So by virtue of that, they wanted us to succeed because he wanted us to succeed. Um, but as they got to know us, you know, I think, I think they realized that we were, you know, similar to the, to the previous owner doctor, um, and that we cared about, you know, not only about them, but the patients and, 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 you know, the growth of the practice. And so that was a, something that they could align themselves with, um, and be on board with. I mean, we, we go ahead. Sorry. What role did the seller play post trend post sale after you guys had the keys? What, what role did he play, um, in the next three to six months or so? You know, he, he was hands off. I mean, he was, he's ready to retire. Um, so, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't in the office anymore. Um, but you know, he, he would, I know he would talk to the staff and because our staff, we kind of asked a lot of them in the beginning, we, we changed softwares, you know, they were still on like half paper chart, half, half some kind of archaic software. And, and we switched to open dental. Um, and it was that in combination with insurance verification or, or credentialing. So, so there was a lot to manage there. Right. Because you guys, the previous owners, they, they weren't collecting or they weren't defining insurance benefits at the time of service and, and collecting at the time of service. Isn't that right? Yeah. And so he, you know, I think whenever they <laughs> had frustrations, I think they would maybe probably talk to him and he would say, you know, it's going to get better or whatnot. Um, but, but beyond that, I mean, he didn't, he, he was pretty hands off. He, he has a lot of friends in the practice. And so he, he kind of blessed us with the goodwill, you know, Dr. Matt, Dr. Alice are good people, you know, um, and that, that helped the transition, but, um, he was pretty hands off. He kind of let us just, you know, move freely and do whatever we want without much input. It kind of worked out pretty well. It definitely, it definitely worked out well. Um, well, so, all right, so we're past the first 90 days, you know, and I'm still learning a lot on the billing side, the insurance world, you know, non-cover service, all of it. Right. And, um, and even as much education as you have received as a dentist, that's a whole new world, right? So what did you guys do in that first 90 days to get more familiar and more comfortable with the billing aspects? You know, <laughs> I'll be honest. I probably could st- still learn a lot more. Um, but I really, you know, I checked the numbers quite a bit on the reports on Open Dental. Um, there are like third-party services that you can that you can attach to your software and keep up to date on things. And I don't really get bogged down like in the minutia of things, but just make sure that the big macro numbers like collections are correct, um, production, you know, all these, all these metrics are being followed correctly. And I know that if the metric looks good, then whatever it takes to get there in that metric, then it's working. And if a metric starts to fall, then I'll take the time to talk to the front and figure out, okay, well, what are, what's changed or what are we doing wrong that it's, that's not working. Um, Cause I feel like that's one thing that maybe stresses a lot of people out as an owner is um thinking they have to know how to do everything i mean i think it's important to to know somewhat but to to have your hands and everything i think is going to make for a pretty stressful situation that's fair that's a fair point um 
so other than collections, I mean, like, what? Let me ask you a question. Where, where were? What was the the outstanding treatment plans? How did those look? And I'm sure because half were paper charts, half were digital. I mean, it's probably not the easiest thing to assess. But I mean, do do you feel now? You know, what are we? 18 months out or 14 months out since you were being owner? Uh, how do you how do you feel that the the treatment plans that you inherited? Uh, what state they were in? Um, they were definitely conservative. Um, the you know the like most probably older docs you know there was a lot of watching um, a lot of patching being done and it's kind of funny when you get to talking to the staff um, you know they're really on board with with more comprehensive treatment and because they see the the detriment or the downside to not having those those larger comprehensive treatment plans um, so I would say you know to the people who are buying practices of conservative dentists that you know it probably is not going to be as hard as you think to switch things over to to a more uh, modern treatment plan i love that you just said that and i think because and the reason i say that is there, it, it is usually a common uh fearful sort of uh thing for for a lot of new owners you know and you're never going to get a perfect practice right it, it doesn't doesn't exist but um what you just said about being being able to change the treatment planning style of the practice is is super important. And and to ask you the next question, really, what subsequent education have you under that, that you have you taken on to sort of help well round you from the a comprehensive treatment planning uh, process? And then not, and then one step further too, how have you in the first year or so been able to? Uh, grow in, in getting patients to be receptive to the comprehensive treatment plan that, that, that you want to subscribe to? Um, you know, one thing that's been kind of nice is, is just having conversations with other dentists about, about treatment planning. Um, you get to see how other people treatment plan and, and what they prescribe to their patients. So like I'm part of a study club um, here, in, here in town. And so there's other doctors that meet and we go over cases and, and you get a feel for you know, how some of the, the younger docs like yourself are treatment planning the, and the older doctors and what works, does, what doesn't work and why. Um, and it helps you feel more confident about, about what you treatment plan and why versus just being like an island. Um, and you get that same benefit from going to CE as well. Um, so that, that's, that's really going to help you. One thing I would like to do is to get started on the COIS um, uh, CE Glad you said that. I, I, if you if you didn't, I, I was going to. I, 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 who who introduced you to to Kois? I can't remember. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of people on social media do it, um, and it seems to be a, a really beneficial to to their to the doctor's quality of life, the way they practice, um, and giving them the confidence to treat. I guess just I don't know in a more comprehensive way um, versus just like single tooth dentistry. Um, cause I feel like a lot of times, you know, we're just waiting till things break and then we fix them, but why not? Let's fix them. Let's understand a problem before it becomes really serious and fix it before it gets to that. I personally have the, um, the luxury of, of being, of seeing both sides, like as a, as a patient, right. Of, of going to an office that's, you know, has the subscribes to the sort of coist method of comprehensive treatment planning versus the, the fixer dentist and me as the patient. And I, you know, I'm probably slightly biased here, but I appreciate it, right? I feel like the conversation is more guided to um, aligning with what 
my sort of vision of what my mouth could be. And then sort of tying that all together for me, giving me step-by-step sort of uh, like the lineage of how it's going to happen. And it's, that, it's just cool. It's just a cool experience. And, and I think that the office culture from staff all the way to the doctor is, is heightened uh, by, by taking that approach because you really start to change lives as opposed to just fix people's problems. And, and, and when you have a patient's life that has just changed before your, for your office's eyes, that could be super motivating. It really can be. Yeah, I think it's um, it's really beneficial because you're you're providing you know an elevated care to the patient. Um, but to to kind of keep on the you know treatment planning, probably one of the single most important things we did in this office was we bought intraoral cameras. Um, so you know we we bought them for the hygienist, we bought them for our room, um, and I mean the the ROI on those cameras has got to be insane um, <laughs> because. I mean, how is, you know, you take a picture of someone's cracked tooth or, or, or their, their cavity. Um, I mean, it's it pretty much the picture does all the talking for you. And, you know, what I like to do is when I do open up a tooth and we see that cavity, I like to take a picture of it, you know, the cavity first and then take a picture after it's been cleaned up and then take a picture of the, the restoration after that way the patients can see the value in what you've done because, you know, dentistry, it's kind of interesting, you know, you come to your exam and nothing hurts. And then the doctor tells you that you have something wrong and then you get a shot and then you leave sore with less money, but you don't know what happened. <laughs> so, right. Right. I mean, so having pictures to, to give them some value as to what you did, it's going to help them, you know, next time when you tell them something's wrong, um, they already understand that value and in, in what you've done for them. And not every patient is going to be cosmetically driven. Um, but I still think, uh, to your point, the educational piece and visually being able to tie in what you're doing and, and how it impacts their, their the future of their mouth is, even for a non-cosmetically driven patient, is, is going to keep that goodwill or, or enhance that goodwill, I should say, with them. Um, okay, well, so what? So right now, where where you are, um, what what do you feel is is most important next? What are the next steps that you? you what are your goals for twenty twenty two and twenty twenty three, maybe even? Yeah, so for for us, we, you know, we bought a we bought a fairly large patient base um, that was that's really too big for the for the space that we're in. Um, so we're currently doing some remodeling and adding some chairs so that we can add add some more hygiene bays. Um, so just increasing that capacity um, and, and just dialing down the systems. So, I mean, once, once you get to a point where, where you have the practice size that, you know, that's about as big as you can manage, then it's about fine tuning things um, to make, to make your, your day easier, to, to make your, your take home um, higher um, on a schedule that maybe you don't have to work as, as um, you know, as hard. Um, and then beyond that, probably adding some more specialty procedures to kind of get away from, from relying on, you know, the typical like PPO fillings and whatnot, um, bringing in some implants. We just bought a CBCT, um, and Alice is, is doing a lot more Invisalign, which, which inherently leads to more, you know, cosmetic dentistry. Absolutely. So I think what to summarize really first step, make sure that you can run the ship the way that it was being run more or less as, as it, as it was before, and then get more strategic in what areas to, to focus on, to, you know, slow, maybe, maybe, and I think rightfully like to slow down, but make, to do more, be more productive, but also at the same time, slow down, which is, you know, maybe slightly counterintuitive, but that is where that strategic direction ultimately leads, um, leads you to. And then what about, 
what, what do you think that, I know that you're adding an operatory and there's probably some aesthetic changes that are happening in the office as well, but do you feel, how, how important do you feel that, um, that the, the aesthetics of the office and the type of comprehensive dentistry that you're wanting to instill in the office, how, do you think that those are interrelated at all? And, and have you made any changes if, if so, or do you plan to? Um, I think aesthetics matter, matter less to the, of the office, matter less to the patients than we think. Um, if you look in some of our operatories, the carpet is like 16 years old and pretty tattered and patients will always say like, Oh, your office is so nice. I mean, as long as things look fairly well put together, um, you know, patients aren't going to leave you because it's, it's an ugly office. doesn't mean that you shouldn't remodel and, and keep up to date, but I think, um, you shouldn't let that stop you from buying, like say an older, an older practice, um, because obviously the patients are still going there. Um, but definitely I think if you're going to start getting into more like comprehensive treatment planning, um, expensive cases, I think it helps to have an office aesthetic that matches that. Um, because the patient is going to have more confidence in you because you're in a nice, like, you know, a nice office. Um, for example, our, our, the oral surgeon that we refer to, his office is like the Taj Mahal. And I would bet money that if his office did not look like that, it would be a lot harder for him to sell you know, $25,000 treatment plans. And, and, and it's an evolution, right? Like one of the, one of my biggest joys of working with people at Matt's stage in their career is that we get to do a, do things the right way in the beginning and avoid a lot of mistakes. That's, that, that's super awesome to be a part of, but then, but B is to, to transition an older practice like this one that has the foundation to be whatever we want it to be. And then make it this, make it like the oral sword surgeon's Taj Mahal, right? And that's ultimately the the direction that the Matt and Alice are, are, are headed. And 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 I think for our listeners, right? He said he mentioned CBCT, he mentioned intraoral cameras, he mentioned new chairs and additional operatories, and those things really happened sort of to the latter half of these fourteen months that you've been in the, as an owner, right? We we there were a lot of steps that we ensured that were taken care of first before we strategically brought those pieces in in the same way that we will strategically wait until the right opportunity to maybe gut the practice a bit more and, and bring more of the, the Taj Mahal feel to, to, to it. Um, one thing that I, I think that I had to do a little convincing with Matt in particular, just because he was in a rural area and marketing is one thing that most people in rural areas don't feel is necessary was to, was to get a good marketing partner on board that was able to uh, have the online presence that, resonated with the the more grand overarching vision that that he and alice um wanted wanted to portray for in his community and, and as a and as a clinician um all right well then what about ce matt you mentioned coist but is there anything else like that you that you've uh that you think that you is important yeah so i mean i think i think being able to to not only restore but place implants is really important um so i a couple of years ago, took the, the AID maxi course, about a year long course. Um, so really extensive, pretty much gives you everything you need to know how to, how to place an implant. And so it kind of gives you the confidence you need to move forward with that, that, um, and, and, and you know, it's, believe it or not, patients are really happy when you tell them that you can offer all of the services in your office. They really don't like leaving you and going to another doctor. Um, so if you can provide that, that service to your patient, uh, it's a lot better for them. It, it really helps to sort of tie in the comprehensiveness that you're from a treatment plan perspective that you're trying to do as well. If it's all can be accomplished in the office. I mean, that is obviously the, the grand plan. Um, 
And then what about what about equipment? You know, we we talked about some pretty key pieces to in order to place implants. We have to have a CBCT machine, right? Uh, but what about um, what about other pieces of equipment that you feel will, in the future, um, add add value to the practice that that you would like to? Yeah. So one of the things that we purchased fairly early on was was an Itero scanner. Um, and not only does it make you know our crown delivery appointments easier, um, but also the the patients see that you're you're up to date right because they've a lot of them have never seen that before and so it gives them more confidence in your treatment as well um and it's got kind of, what's does that? everyone get does everyone get scanned in your office you know we're working on it we're trying to we, we really need to implement that because it's funny i would say <laughs> one of the, the the most common things people say as soon as you scan their teeth they always say wow my teeth are so ugly um i, I mean it happens all the time and so just by showing somebody their teeth, you know, their malocclusion or, or their, their wear patterns, um, it's pretty easy for them to almost like self-diagnose, hey, I need, I need braces or, or why are all my teeth broken? And, and so, and, which is a very sensitive, you know, segue, right? To first let the patient identify almost for themselves, right? But then how do you gently uh, show them what their teeth could look like with your help? Yeah. And that's, that's the hard part, right? Um, is, you know, trying to tell them like in a nice way, you know, your teeth, are maybe not ideal and they could look better. <laughs> it, I know it, it is super hard. What, so there's, and there's technology out there that's especially, it's getting even, it's evolving even more so every day where we're, where we're able to take what you would call a, a maybe more or less a perfect mouth and sh- and then put, put it in put it actually in that patient's face so they can see yeah so one thing we want to move towards is like, like a virtual smile um type type program where you know we can take photos of the patient and then virtually show them what their teeth would look like um, had they gone through say invisalign or invisalign and and uh, indirect restorations um because until they see it it's, it's hard for them to to put the value on on what you could do for them it, it really is. It really is. And, and you know, a lot, the virtual smile stuff, a lot of it is, is really still focused on online and, and sort of more toward like ad funnels and, and, but it is being refined and I'd love to see a lot of my clients, especially bring it into the office and into the operatories where it's, you know, patient side by side where you're actually able to digitally transform their, their mouth right before their eyes, uh, as opposed to needing to be behind a computer, you know, at home potentially even, uh, that will continue to evolve. That was something that I that I personally love. I think the virtual smile stuff that Matt mentioned. There's a lot of platforms out there that that can accomplish this, but it's been um, a bigger uh, the the transition for patient acceptance on your virtual smiles is is been heightened and accelerated because of COVID. One of the benefits, I think, um, one of the few, one of the one of the few <laughs> of COVID. It, it's it's nice because I mean traditionally it was like you know. You, First, you have to get the patient to to want to pay for a wax up, <laughs> and then you take an impression, and the lab makes a wax up, and they and they they see these teeth, but these teeth don't mean anything to them because they don't they don't know what a, a pretty tooth looks like, um, and it's not in their mouth. So, I'm speaking from experience, as I I know it's tough to sort of take that wax up and then visually see what it would look like in your on your face. Yeah, no, but um, Matt, I know that you have um that you're bringing on a, a new uh, advisor that's, you know, pra- more practice management oriented. 
um, this year, and that that's one of, one of the new things that you're adding. What do you, what are you hoping to to accomplish with them, and 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 what 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 are the areas that you guys are going to explore together? Yeah, you know, I would really like them to to help you know, streamline our front um, to dial in the systems so that we can pretty much be as as efficient as possible with our schedule. Because um, we're you know we're to the point where we have a very healthy patient flow, healthy number of patients. Now it's a matter of okay, our schedule's busy, but maybe we're not being the most productive as we possibly could be. Um, so just really maximizing that. Um, and what's nice about this specific advisor is they have some skin in the game. So you know they they don't benefit if we don't benefit, basically. So another way, another way of saying that is they're, they're getting paid based on the growth that they provide. Exactly. Right. So in my opinion, my preferred compensation structure when it comes to consultants, because otherwise there's a lot of, uh, a lot of fluff that can potentially go on for, for a number of months without any actual changes to the profitability and the financial components of, of the, of the business, which is ultimately what we define a consultant as really just in general is someone that adds value. And that's, it's nice to see when they're compensated on the value that they add rather than just um, a fixed payment. And do I mean, in your search, like I think uh, how hard was it to find someone that was willing to, 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 to be compensated in that way? You know, I've never heard of that before. Um, I think it's pretty rare. I think it's, it's easy for, I think it's easy for people to just accept, you know, this is the flat rate and, and we may or may not get results. I, I mean, it's, I'll say this. I have um, Matt is not working with someone that I that I referred him to um, on the practice management consulting side, but I do personally have a, a, a couple um, of practice management like and, and some other more niche consultants that I, that I've worked with uh, closely in the past, and they're all compensated in that in that way. Um, and, and I think to Matt's point, it's really it is really hard to find find those types of people, but when you do. You know, that's why I, I you know, I, I rarely partner, you know, with people uh, in the dental industry just because there's so many, so many great people out there. But when you find someone on the consulting side that or, or is willing to put their, you know, money where their mouth is, so to speak, uh, it's really good. It's, you know that the partnership is going to be a, a strong one. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think like, so one thing that we want to implement that follows that same kind of trajectory is, is like production bonuses for our staff, right? Um, because I, I think people, when they see their work tied to a reward um, and it's scalable, I think I think you get more input. And bonus plans, you do you one hundred percent. I think the the hard part with bonus plans is there's there's a thousand of them out there, right? <laughs> Maybe a million, even I don't know. And everybody's got a little bit of a different flavor and how they want to prescribe it. But the ones that work are the ones that are that directly tie the employees' inputs to their bonus output and you know, to have a practice manager consultant to come in and, and, and really structure one that's sound and, and does that, that's, what's really key. You could be asked, you know, what's the, what's, what's a bonus plan I can, well, it really just depends. And you really need someone like on a, in a, on a more hands-on basis that to, to implement that because it's so connected to all the other things that you're working on and doing. So, and then what last topic here, Matt is, is, is insurance and your thoughts on it. it you know, the, over the last 14 months or so that you've been an owner, do you feel like insurance is beneficial? Do you feel like you'll want to keep that in your life or do you feel eventually you'll move away from, from insurance? Um, 
I mean, it's it's good and bad, right? Um, it's good because it helps patients say yes to treatment, but it's bad because they their compensation is terrible um, compared to like UCR fees, right? And so you have to find that balance. Um, I think as we move forward, you know, insurances have have shown that they they have no no motivation to to pay us more. <laughs> they probably want to keep paying us less every year. So we have to figure out ways to combat that, whether it be you know charging charging a lab fee for a crown or or, or you know not worrying about covered benefits and explaining to the patients what they really need and that their insurance is probably not going to cover it. And that their insurance is probably is not actually insurance, and it's probably a bad a bad way to 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 name it. Well, one of the one of the benefits of being in, in network with people, especially once you get your online marketing established, you get a hundred ish Google reviews. Things that we didn't actually talk about today, Matt, but things that you did right. You you guys are over a hundred Google reviews now, even in a rural area, and then you're on this insurance in network page, it's almost like SEO, right? You know, the, the lower your fee schedule is with them, the higher you're going to show for the patients that are looking for a, a new dentist. And then they correlate that, or they, they go to the, they go to your Google reviews, they see how many you have, and then they make their decision for, you know, to come in or not come in. Um, and so that is one of the benefits of being in network. You're going to have a, have a, a healthier new patient flow. And there's an episode that I did with Ben two and a on non-cover services, something I've talked a lot with Matt and Alice about implementing and that added margin that you can accomplish through, I think Matt said lab fees for, for crowns is one of them. Um, and with that added margin, you can be more confident with those new, with that new patient flow of being comprehensive in your treatment planning, knowing that it's okay if 30% of them say no, because with that added margin, we, we don't need as many new patients. Um, well, very interesting dynamics, uh, an internal debate on, on in practice CFO as well as, as to what's the better strategic play there. Do we go out of network and just be completely out of network or do we play the insurance game for the patient flow and, and try to make up the margin with uh, out-of-pocket charges? Very, very interesting topic. But Yeah, I think it depends on your goals too, right? I mean, I mean, we're, we're far away from that, but like, you know, what's your, what's your exit strategy? Um, if you're selling a practice that's, that's all fee-for-service, you know, it, your, your numbers with you as a doctor look better, but, um, you know, your goodwill doesn't transfer as well because those patients, you know, they can go anywhere they want. Right. So you have to keep that in mind as well. Well said, well said. And, and I think to your point that we made at the very beginning about like having sort of an excess of patients an excess of new, fo- new patients too, gives you as a new owner, you know, while you're learning to have the opportunity to make mistakes and not necessarily be detrimental to the, to the overall practice. So, well, cool, man, Matt, I really appreciate it. You know, having new owners on, on the program that have done really well and have a great plan in place is super helpful for everybody coming behind them. So I, I do appreciate your time uh, on the show today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Um, it's been great working with you this past, you know, 18 months. Um, Alice and I have been really happy and thank you for everything. Uh, it's been a pleasure. 